on the night of his birth, we are told that there was a star that appeared in the east. And then when he arrived, a choir of angels sang in the heavenly realms. And that for centuries, the story had been foretold that on this special occasion, in an unknown town, in a forsaken place, the heavens would open and God would descend and that he would be born among us. Emmanuel, God with us. And we are told that on that cold winter's night, as the angels sang and as the stars shone, only a few people recognized his coming. There was, as you know, no room in the inn. There was no place or a home or a welcoming party except for the animals and the darkness. And yet a few people, having searched the scriptures, having prayed to God, were alerted. And the Bible declares his birth with these words, goodwill towards men. Good news, today a Savior has been born. For some time now, his mother had been anticipating his birth. But it was a strange time of anticipation for she was just a young girl. And she had been told by an angel that the baby inside of her was not just human, but divine. Mary had to wait to see the baby boy. And during that waiting, she must have worried. Who am I to carry, to give birth, and to raise a God? She was scared, we are told, when the angel spoke to her. But the angel said, fear not. Don't be afraid, for you have found favor with God. God thinks of you highly and he wants to bless you. And in that moment of worry and in that moment of fear, as the angel reassured her, Mary said, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be so. And with those words and that act of faithfulness, she received the presence of the Holy Spirit, which implanted in her, we are told, the baby Jesus. For sometimes she carried this knowledge, and I'm sure as she tried to tell friends and relatives, no one would believe her, but as her belly grew, they knew something was happening. On the night of her birth, on the night of his birth, the angels sang, the star appeared, but very few people, no relatives and no friends were present. No one there to encourage and to affirm. And so the child was born. And so the baby came to be among us. We are told in the book of Matthew 
that during his early days, Jesus' parents brought him to the temple, and as they brought him to the temple to participate in the ordinances, the rituals, the dedication, and the prayers, that there were others there who had also been looking for the Messiah. And upon seeing Jesus, they exclaimed in a loud voice and proclaimed that in fact this was the one they waited for. And the Bible says that Mary just watched and carried these memories in her heart. We've been talking here on our campus what it must have been like for a young woman to raise this child with that kind of expectation that he would grow up to be a savior. And what kind of pressure it must have been for a little baby boy, a little boy Jesus to grow up with this idea that he was son of God, even though there was no evidence except what he had been told by his mother. The Bible tells us that when he was 12, he attended the Passover with his family in Jerusalem, and, and they forgot him there. We, we talked about this last week, and they didn't realize it for a while, and finally they realized that they came back to look for him. Three days later, they found him in church, and when they found him, they said, Jesus, why have you done this? And Jesus said, I don't know why you bothered to look for me anywhere else. Didn't you know? You're the one that's been telling me I am God's son. Where else would I be except in my father's house? The pressure, the pressure to raise them, the pressure to, to grow up, this pressure you understand because many of us have grown up with pressure, the expectations of others, the words, the premonitions, the dreams of others placed solely upon our shoulders. But Jesus responded to this most unexplainable pressure with purpose. He said, I am my father's son. He came to believe that even though he had no way of proving that. Imagine for just a second being an elementary school age Jesus and during show and tell saying, well, did you know that my father is from heaven? <laughs> no, it's true. My mom was a virgin when I was conceived. And the kids are like, what's a virgin? Never mind. The point is, I am from the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine the kind of ridicule a young fifth grader Jesus would get? Claiming that he was, Father is the Holy Spirit, the capital H, capital S. The Holy Ghost. And yet Jesus responded to this belief with purpose. He said, I am my father's son. At 12 years old, he made this profession, I will be in my father's household. And the Bible, as we talked about last week, remains silent about what happens over the next 18 years. But as Jesus told in anonymity... As he grew up to be a man, the Bible says, in favor with, with both man, with his community, and with God, he was not a public figure. There were no stars shining. There was no angel choruses. He was just another man. And I can only imagine Jesus moving into his 20s at a time when he was old enough, mature enough, robust enough to make out his own living and create his own life, but still staying at home working in his father's shop, still telling himself, I am the Son of God, born of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? Have you ever been 
convinced of something when no one else would believe you? Have you ever had to tell yourself something no one else would say is true about you, but you just believed it? And sometimes you just had to keep saying it to yourself, I will be a doctor someday. I'm going to make this marriage work. I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get that job. Have you ever had to tell yourself? Have you ever talked yourself into believing something? But can you imagine trying to talk yourself into believing you are the son of God? That you are born of a ghost? Jesus responded to those 18 years of anonymity with faithfulness. You know why we know this? Because the next time the Bible speaks about Jesus, he's close to 30 years old. And the Bible says that as John the Baptist was baptizing and proclaiming the good news, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible tells us that Jesus came to the waters. And the Holy Spirit was upon John the Baptist. When he saw Jesus, he said, what are you doing here? You shouldn't come into the baptismal waters. This is the forgiveness of sins. You have no sins. The Holy Spirit has shown me. But Jesus says, let us do this for it is right. You see, you don't step into righteousness from one day to the next. You follow into righteousness because it is a habit, a skill, a practice that you have done all your life for 18 years in anonymity without the voice of God, without the angels, without the choirs. Jesus practiced righteousness. He was a good son to his earthly father. He was a good brother, a good member of the community. For 18 years, he practiced righteousness. Friends, if you are in the waiting, if you are in the preparing stage, let me beg you, to walk rightly. Don't give up on your purpose and on your dream in the waiting by taking your eyes off your destination and taking a temporary detour. Jesus walked in righteousness in favor with God and man so that when the time came, he could step into his destiny. The Bible tells us that Jesus walked into the baptismal waters. You know the story. And as he came up out of the water, not before, but as he came up out of the water, the heavens opened. And at last, at 30 years old, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove. You know the story. And the heavens spoke out loud for all the crowd that was gathered to hear. And the heavens spoke and the voice of God said, this is my son. In him, I am well pleased. I've been thinking about that phrase for quite a while because I am a son. But maybe you're like me. Maybe you live through seasons and times in your life when you wish your father would claim you. When you wish your father would speak with pleasure and pride about you. Most of you know my dad, my biological father passed away when I was young. And as I stepped into adulthood in my 20s, that's the one affirmation I craved and I longed for. I wanted someone to say, this is my son. But I'm sure you can understand, some of you know what it's like to want and not receive. 
My adoptive father is a good man. He provided for me. But when I, in my 20s, decided to pursue ministry, it was my adoptive father who said, you're making a mistake. I cannot support you in this. I remember distinctly the conversation we had in our living room when he said, do that. I was going to be an engineer, by the way. He said, do that first. And once you've got an engineering degree, then you can pursue this nonsense. And I said, Dad, i got to go. My dad looked at me, and I love him, Manuel. I love him. But he said, in his, in his most earnest way, he says, I can't support you making this decision. And I won't. <laughs> With his favorite phrase, not one red cent. <laughs> but one day, many years later, my adoptive father came to my graduation. And I remember he came to church with me. He doesn't normally go to church, but he came to church. And we were sitting after. And he spoke words like those. He said, Mijo, I'm proud of you. And I'd been waiting years, years and years to hear that. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? To hear your father say, you're my son. I'm proud of you. Jesus comes up out of the water at 30 years old, 30. He'd been waiting 30 years to hear the voice of God out loud to affirm something that he'd been claiming about himself. Could you wait that long, friends? Could you wait that long? Could you make such outlandish claim without any evidence and wait and keep believing and keep professing? See, Jesus responded to the pressure with purpose, and he responded to the waiting with perseverance. He believed and believed and believed. And finally, the heavens opened, and he said, This is my son. This is my son. What an amazing declaration. You are my son. I'm proud of you. The Bible tells us that in that one moment, there's this great climactic moment of affirmation. That on the one hand, Jesus had been waiting all of these years for that public declaration of his deity. But on the other hand, it began his public ministry, which means that in that one moment of affirmation, Jesus was finally embraced in a public way by the heavens, but also forever removed from the realms of anonymity. Jesus now had a mark on him. See, every time you make a declaration about yourself, every time you make a statement or a post about yourself, it gives people all around the world the ability to judge you based on your statements. Do you know what I'm talking about? I know you do. The second you make it Facebook official, all of a sudden everybody knows and, and, and it's up for grabs. The statements, the moment you make this declaration, I am this, I am that, so I am no longer single. I, it, there's, it's public. And once it's public, then everyone feels entitled to judge you on it. Amen? No? You guys aren't on social media? You aren't, nobody's on Facebook, right? You know, the Bible says, thou shalt not lie. So I'm just throwing that out there. And, and even if it's not about social media, you know what I'm talking about. The day you come home and you say to your husband or wife, your friend, cousin, neighbor, you said, I'm going to do this. Now suddenly everyone has eyes on you to see if you'll actually go through with it. It's why we love anonymity, friends. It is. It's why we like going places where nobody knows who we are. 
It's why some of us like to shop far away from where we live or from where our coworkers go to shop too. You know what I'm talking about. Don't pretend you don't. You drive far away to go to a different Costco so you don't have to run into your friends at the local Costco because then you have to say hi. <laughs> Worst thing, you cut someone off to get a parking spot. Oh, they're from church. <laughs> Or on the freeway right here, right? Right here on that, on that, <laughs> right there, Bonita Road merger. You cut somebody off, you're like, oh. <laughs> Happy Sabbath. God is good. Yeah. We love anonymity because it allows us an excuse to not live up to our beliefs. We love anonymity because it removes from us the responsibility of doing what we say we will do or being who we say we are. But the moment anonymity is removed, the moment it's your name rather than your tag, your name, your picture, the moment it's your statement, suddenly... There's an enormous amount of responsibility you just can't get away from. You can't undo that. And when the heavens opened and they spoke and they said, this is my son, Jesus had both an affirmation and now a direct mark. From this moment on, everyone would begin to look at him and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, are you really? And they would watch and judge his every moment, his every motion, his every word, his every deed. And that's exactly what took place. The Bible tells us that Jesus retreated to prayer because, friends, if you're going to live out a purpose and step into your destiny, you must first retreat into prayer. Because you cannot do what you were meant to do without the God who sent you to do it. Jesus retreated into prayer and there he bathed himself in the presence of God and as he prayed and as he wrestled and as he fasted, he found the courage and the strength to step forward into public destiny. You know the story. Jesus began to walk among us and he began to reveal to us the heart of God. Jesus said it most clearly in his own words when he said, I've come to do the will of my Father and the will of my Father is this that none would be lost. For I have not come to judge the world, but to save it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus began to live this out in a practical way amongst the people especially amongst those that no one else could care for. The lowly, the broken, the wounded, the sick, the lame, the prostitutes, the tax collectors who are hated most of all. And Jesus began to live out a ministry of touch, a ministry of emotion, a ministry of compassion. He began to live out the true heart of God, not that he would gain notoriety, but to express what God really wants to do. God wants to heal the broken. God wants to release the oppressed. God wants to bless those who seek him. The heart of God. The Bible tells us during his brief stint in public ministry, just three years and change, that everywhere he walked, he left a trail of love, unexplainable love. 
Like that time when they brought that prostitute, you remember, caught in the act, and they threw her at Jesus' feet, and they said, Jesus, Bible says she deserves to be stoned, and Jesus began to ride on the sand. You know the story. And he said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And after they had left, the woman looks up and Jesus says, is anyone left to judge you? And she says, I don't see anyone. Jesus says, well, neither do I. You see, unexplainable. And he leaves this trail of love wherever he goes, with the crippled, with the sick, with the wounded, with the lonely, feel embraced and accepted. And after doing this publicly, for some time, after traveling and traveling and everywhere he goes, leaving these seeds of love, these evidences of his heart, the Bible tells us that it came time for him to finally fulfill and complete his destiny. We're told in the book of Mark that as Jesus prepared to celebrate the Passover meal, what you and I affectionately call the Last Supper, he sent his disciples in ahead of him and he said, go and you'll find a house and ask the owner of the house to prepare a place and we will have this Passover meal there. You remember the story? They did not know. They were unaware. The disciples right around Jesus had heard him talk about what he was going to do. He said it repeatedly over and over again, but they did not understand. And they did not understand that in this moment he was preparing physically, emotionally, and spiritually to go through with the task that he had been assigned from the beginning of time. They prepared the Passover meal anyway because for them this was an important symbol, an important marker, just like this weekend might be for some of you. A celebration of, of new hope and new life, or maybe it is for you a time to gather with your families, put on the bunny suit, or hide the eggs. I'm not sure. But as they prepared, they did not understand that they would be celebrating the Passover meal with the Lamb Himself. The Bible tells us in the book of Mark that as they sat reclined at the table, Jesus took bread and He broke it. And after praying, He passed it amongst. And then He took the juice and He blessed it and He passed it among them. And He said, this is the blood of this, this, this juice represents my blood the blood of the new covenant see Jesus had come to earth to restore something we've been talking about this this entire year on our campus when God first created us we were designed to live in constant companionship with God in constant community do you know that God is we he speaks in we in plural because he is community and God designed us to live in community with and for one another and together with him. We were designed, we were created It's what exists inside of us, a desire to connect with him. That's what we were meant to be and yet we walked away from that. We walked away from the protection and the provision of God historically speaking and left to our own devices we made a mess of it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Left to our own devices, all we've got is conflict, aggression, and bad tweets that currently are making North Korea very upset. Can you imagine that? Did you read that story? North Korean government, State TV, is saying Donald Trump's tweets are making them mad, so they're getting ready to unleash nuclear weapons on us. Left to our own devices. We can make simple words turn into war. Left to our own devices, we make simple disagreements 
break homes and marriages. Left to our own devices, we left simple misunderstandings break relationships and friendships. See, left to our own devices without the protection and the provision of God, we cannot create, we cannot bless, we cannot multiply life. That only comes from God. And God knew that without him, we were destined for death. Destined to destroy one another, symbolically, emotionally, physically. And so he sent his son. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3. That the plan of salvation, as we call it, began to take place. And at the right time, at the appointed time, the little baby came. And now as he grows up and he lives out the heart of God, he is coming to the point of his destiny. And there he gathers in the company of his friends. And they're celebrating an ordinance, a symbol. And yet Jesus is literally doing the work of salvation. The Bible tells us in the book of Mark that as they gathered and began to pray and began to eat, Jesus was sharing his heart and he was essentially getting them to understand that it was his task on this earth to reveal the heart of God, primarily by helping us understand that God wants to restore us back to that original relationship, but we can't get back there on our own. There has to be a way, there has to be a bridge, and Jesus claims that he is the way. The truth and the life. But they did not understand the cost. And so Jesus there at the table said, this is my body broken. That's the cost. This is my blood spilled. That's the cost. The disciples did not get it. But the Bible tells us that after eating this meal and after singing some songs, they went out. They led them out and Jesus took them to the garden. The garden of Gethsemane, a familiar name, one that is known to us, but not a garden of flowers and not a garden of joy, but a garden of pain. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus began to pray in this garden of Gethsemane and it is there in preparation for what he knew was about to take place, that the weight, that the weight of sin and darkness began to weigh on him so heavily. Do you know why? Because only God could bring us back into relationship with him. But the price was immense. And the price was separation from God is what death deserves. It's what sin brings. Bible tells us that Jesus, did you know this? As he prayed in the garden of Gethsemane, he began to be overwhelmed. I know some of you know what that means. To feel sorrow, to be overwhelmed. Not just depression, but like an overwhelming. And he began to sob and he began to heave. Ellen White says in her chapter in the garden of Gethsemane that he was so stressed that he began to sweat, but sweat blood. Like the capillaries under the skin got so full of pressure, so full of blood, that it began to go through his, through his pores and began to bleed sweats of blood. That Jesus felt so overwhelmed by what he was feeling, by what he was carrying, that his body couldn't take it anymore and began to express itself this way. You know why? Because Jesus is the Son of God, but in that moment, he is being disowned. The Bible tells us in the book of Mark that as Jesus was in the garden praying, he looked up to heaven and he exclaimed in these words, chapter 14, he said, Father, Abba, Father, Dad. I know everything is possible. I know you can do anything. And if it's possible, please take this cup from me. Don't let me suffer this way. Jesus spoke to the heavens and he said, please let it pass. 
pass from me. Take this cup from me. And the heavens said nothing. Can you imagine that? The heavens which once had laid out a choir. The hallelujah chorus at his birth. The heavens which had come down in the form of a dove and said, this is my son. Now in this moment of his greatest need, the heavens were silent. That's the price. That's the cost. When we walked away from God, that's our destiny. When we said no thanks to God, both then and every moment, you and I know the instructions of God, but we choose to spit in his face and we say, I don't care what you want. I'm going to do whatever I want. That's the price. That's the destination. That's where we're headed, to have silence from heaven. And Jesus prayed in the garden and he begged God, but God would not answer because... That's the cost. And upon the silence of the heavens, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will. See, friends, this is hard for us to understand, but it is the will of the Father, not that everyone be lost, but that Jesus lose. So he sent his son to pay our price to bear our cost. The Old Testament says that by his wounds we are healed. By his wounds. And that's not just an expression. Because there that night as he came back from the garden, angry men showed up and they grabbed him in the middle of the night like a common criminal. This man who, who just healed people and blessed people, who multiplied bread for people, this man, they grabbed him like a common criminal. This boy who once had been in the sanctuary, whom the heavens declared, this is my son, they grabbed him and they bound him and they took him in the middle of the night to a makeshift court where people labeled accusations and they blamed him for things he did not do and said of things about him that were not true and they asked him the leaders of the day defend yourself say something defend yourself but Jesus didn't say a word you know why for you and for me he did not defend himself he could have he should have but he didn't the Bible tells us that they blamed him, they labeled him, and they, 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 they testified falsely against him. And they said, you are blaspheming. Are you the son of God? And he said, if you say so. The Bible tells us that the leaders there of the Sanhedrin, they, they gathered together. They said, that's enough. We don't need any more. He's a blasphemer. He deserves to die. And they convicted him of blasphemy. And they condemned him to die. But before they took him to the authorities, the Bible tells us in the book of Mark that they put a robe over his head. No, they spit on him first. Then they put a robe over his head. And then these men, these men of God, these, these students of the word, they beat him on the head and they say, who hit you? If you're a prophet, if you're the son of God, maybe you can tell without seeing who hit you. And Jesus took the knocks on his head for you and for me, and he didn't say a word. Not one. 
Bible tells us that they took him from there and early in the morning they dragged him to the civic courts to see Pilate. And there they said, this man is a blasphemer. He deserves to die. We cannot kill him. You have to kill him. So we want you to kill him. And Pilate begins to speak to him. You know, this is found in the gospels of the book of Mark. And Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, if you say so. And Pilate says, well, defend yourself. Say something. What kind of man are you? Speak up. Don't you know that I, I, you're in my hands? But Jesus gives himself willingly and he does not defend himself. He, he refuses to. Pilate goes back to the people and he says, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't. I can't convict him of anything. He hasn't done anything wrong. But the people begin to shout and begin to scream. You know the story. The people begin to ask and they said, no, we want him dead. Pilate sensing the, 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 the crowd mentality says, okay, normally I release a prisoner. How about I release to you guys Barabbas, who was actually a convicted murderer. And they said, no, we don't want Barabbas. Bring us Jesus and crucify him. You know the story. They begin to chant and begin to shout. The Bible tells us that as the civic authorities said, no, there's no reason to crucify him. He isn't, he's not guilty of that. They said, let us decide for ourselves. His blood be on us, they claim. Fascinating. The Bible tells us the pilot decided he could not turn the, the crowd away. So he convicted Jesus without a crime. By his own words. And he handed him over to be crucified. And the Bible tells us that the soldiers led Jesus away. And they called together all the company of soldiers. This is Mark chapter 15, verse 16. And they put a purple robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again, they struck him on the head with sticks and they spit on him. And then they fell on their knees and they, they mocked him with homage. Then they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes and they led him out to be crucified. And Jesus had to carry his own cross. And he walked that lonely walk up to the place of the school. And there at the top of the hill with the other criminals, they put him on that tree. And the Bible tells us that at no point and in no moment does Jesus choose to walk away. At no point or at no moment does he call upon the same heaven, the same angels, at no point or at no point does he call on the Holy Spirit to come and remove him from the situation because he could have. There were times, you know, in his earthly ministry when they wanted to seize him, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he slipped through their grasp and he, and he appeared somewhere else. There were times when he could do impossible things, walk on water, but he refused. He allowed himself to be bound and placed on that cross. Do you know why, friends? Because he was convicted. 
He was convicted with your sin and mine. That's the price. Someone has to pay it. And Jesus said, I will. I will pay it for you. A couple of weeks ago, I was visiting another church and at the conference and in their sanctuary they had a cross on one side of the chapel and on the other side they had a prayer wall and as you step into this chapel they have a cross similar to the one that we have and they have a stack of papers on there and they said if, if there's a something you want to confess to God if there's a sin a mistake something that you that you want to give over to God write it on this piece of paper and then put it on the wall as you make your way around the chapel, there's this prayer wall, and they have pa papers there as well. And they said, if there's anything you want to request of God, anything you want to ask of God, write it on here and put it on the prayer wall. And I remember being in that room on that day just a couple of weeks ago and being stuck in the middle. You see, when it came time to the prayer wall, I had so many requests, don't you? I had so many things that I want God's blessing on and his provision for and, and things for my family and for you, for my church. And I, I, I wrote so many things. But at the other end of that building, I also had so many things I'm ashamed of. And I was stuck in the middle. For all I had to offer him, or my sins. And in exchange, I wanted all these things. And it seemed absurd to me that I could come before God and make these prayer requests when all he would get from me is my sin. And yet, friends, that's exactly what Jesus is offering and what he's always offered. That was his destiny. That was his purpose. My sin for his blessings. My sin for his righteousness. My conviction for his freedom. That's the exchange. And Jesus paid the price on that cross. Today, as a church, we remember. We commemorate this great act of sacrifice, unselfish, unexplainable sacrifice. And I want to invite you to take a good look at you, at yourself, at your family, your life, and to consider what you're holding in your hand. I have here in our sanctuary some nails. And this nail for me represents my conviction. Friends, I know that. I know that the things that I've done and, the, and who I am deserves nothing but this, this pain, this agony, and this death. And I know that if left up to my own devices, this is all that I'm gonna get. It represents my conviction. But today on this day, Jesus wants to take it from me. He wants to be convicted in my place and in yours. See, all that belongs to Jesus, the heavenly choirs, the hallelujah chorus, 
profession of sonship. This is my son in whom I, that belongs to Jesus. And what belongs to me is this, conviction, death, pain and suffering. That's all I deserve. But Jesus comes and he says, I'll trade you yours for mine. And when I give him mine, I get his. Can you imagine that? That the heavens would sing hallelujah for you? That the heavens would open and say, this is my son, this is my daughter. For that is the offer Jesus is making. He's not offering to die simply, simply so that you don't feel any shame. He's not offering to die simply so that you don't feel bad anymore. He's not offering to die so that you can forget about what you did. He's offering to die so that you can be son in his place. So that the heavens can open and say, you are my son. You are my son. In you, I am well pleased. In you, I have found pleasure. That's what Jesus is saying. My place for yours. I'll take your place on that cross. You take my place up in the heavens. You come, be restored to my father. You don't have to be alone. You don't have to walk in shame. You don't have to live in darkness. You don't have to sweat blood. Take my place. Take my yoke upon you. Take mine. Take mine. Give me yours and take mine. Will you? See, just, I'm worried for us, friends, because I think some of us are just carrying our own conviction. We say we believe, but we're still nailing ourselves every day, carrying so much shame and fear and guilt for the past, even what you did yesterday, but Jesus is here today. And his cross is there for you today. And if you will, but just trust him and let the blood of Jesus cover your sins. If you will, but just let his forgiveness be true for you also. He's offering you peace. He's offering you righteousness. All the things we cannot get for ourselves you've got to bring yours to the cross. You've got to bring yours to the cross. If this is the day for you, I'm inviting you. The heavens are here. God is here. If this is your day, I'm inviting you. Come. Bring your conviction. Nail it to the cross and let the blood of Jesus wash over your sins. There are hammers here, nails there.